We are journeying through the book of Mark, the New Testament narrative of Mark. And we will be in Mark chapter 6 this morning, verses 45 through 56. This is the story of Jesus walking on the water and Jesus healing the sick in Gennesaret. A friend of mine was discussing with me one time a conversation he had with a pastor as he was preparing to write a sermon. He, he had this conversation with the pastor. He asked the pastor, what is one of the greatest threats to the, moder- to the modern church? The pastor responded to his inquiry, that's easy, a low Christology. The church, he went on to say, the church has very little reverence for Christ, and most of it is born from, sin, from self-inflicted ignorance. As we finish up chapter 6 today, we will need to remember the question that is being posed by Mark in chapters 1 through 8. This is the question, who is Jesus? We will either let the Bible answer that question, or we will try and answer it with human reasoning, mysticism, or our feelings. But here we get eyewitness accounts by the Apostle Peter as he narrates to Mark all that he witnessed and experienced as he followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Listen to what Peter says here. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says here, we were eyewitnesses. We did not follow uh, these clever devices about who Jesus was. We saw it with our own eyes. Have we spent much time thinking about this question? Who is Jesus and why does his life, his death, and his resurrection matter to us? Is he simply an afterthought when we find ourselves in life's valleys or mountaintops? Is he just a good man? Is he just a revolutionary or a way out of some of our bondage? Is he merely a historic figure that we attribute some of what we believe to? Or, here's the question, has he completely changed our lives? Let's look at our text this morning, Mark chapter six, If you would turn in your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well, let's look at verses 45 through 48 as, as a group. And these are verses from the vantage point of Jesus. Mark begins this section with his most popular word in his narrative, immediately. This meaning that right after he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, it says he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. There is a specific place they are headed as they point the sea vessel towards a city named Bethsaida. But watch the language at the end of verse 45. It says, he dismissed the crowd. And obviously, we are left to our, our imaginations as to what this dismissing looked like. But Mark and the other gospel writers speak of the crowd often trying to force Jesus to become their king and take the place of the Roman emperor who held power over the people of Israel. And Jesus had escaped being thrown off a cliff and also escaped the crowd trying to force him into power. But he also, listen, he also had the power to dismiss the crowd. Look at verse 46. We see where Jesus goes after the Legacy Standard Translation says, bids them farewell. He tells them goodbye. He goes up to the mountain to pray. And again, the question is, who is Jesus, the Son of God, who is he praying to? To his heavenly Father. The Scottish Old Testament scholar George Adam Smith once climbed the Weisshorn Mountain in Switzerland with a guide during a stormy day. As they approached the pinnacle, Smith was enthusiastic about seeing the view from the, from the top. As he reached the summit, he sprang to the top, forgetting about the strong winds and almost fell over, but was grabbed by his guide. And his guide yelled at him, on your knees, sir, you are only safe here on your knees. Jesus knew the safest place he was to be was up on the mountain in prayer to his heavenly father. How easy it would have been to give in to the demands of the crowd and the needs of his people, but instead we see the Lord Jesus retreat to the mountaintop to pray in humble submission. And here's just a couple of questions for us to think about. Do you think Mark makes this point of emphasis on purpose? Do you think he makes this point of emphasis on purpose that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray? And here's a question for us to think about. How are we growing in our desire to pray? How much time do we spend on our knees before God in humble submission to our heavenly Father? 
saying, Father, I need help. Thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. How are we growing in our desire to pray? Let's look at verse 47. Verse 47 sets the tension for what's coming. The end of the workday had come. The boat with the apostles was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. This seems to be the calm before the storm. And don't forget, winds that blew in from the mountains that Jesus was coming down from and the arid desert plains could whip up storms on the Sea of Galilee very quickly. And then verse 48 paints that picture for us. Custom says that there was a north wind that the people in that day, especially fishermen, called the shark. This was a north wind that would blow very specifically on certain days. This, this could have been very well been what verse 48 is saying here, that as the apostles were rowing north towards Bethsaida, the north wind blew against them as Jesus saw them, the, the verse says, making headway painfully. And pay attention to how verse 48 is split in two parts here. Jesus sees them fighting the invisible shark-like wind, and around 3 to 6 a.m., this is what the fourth watch of the night means, Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Let's pause on that one sentence. It says, he came to them walking on the sea. Are you kidding me? Jesus is walking on water. And there's not an exclamation point in sight. Why not? Because Jesus is God. This is not a big deal for the Son of God to walk on water. And then look at the last sentence of verse 48. It says, he meant to pass them by. Does that mean he made a mistake and was like, whoops? It says, he meant to pass them by. This is packed full of Old Testament meaning. The Legacy Standard Translation and the New American Standard Translation says, he intended to pass by them. We need to make a theological distinction here. There is a word we need to know, and this word is theophany. This comes from two Greek words. The first word is theos, and, uh, which means God, excuse me, and phano, which means to manifest or show or display. Therefore, a theophany is simply a manifestation of God in some visible form. This happens a few times in the Old Testament. It happens to Abraham in Genesis, it happens to Moses in the desert and on the mountain, and it happens to Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings. A human, listen, a human sees a manifestation of God because God allows it. The way Mark describes it here uh, through the eyes of Peter, it is tie, tied to, to the Old Testament in Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. Job chapter 9, starting in verse 8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, 
who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? So Jesus is walking toward the boat in the midst of this windstorm and begins to walk parallel with them on the boat so they will recognize him. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, Jesus self-consciously made himself a theophany, the glory of God bursting through the shroud of the humanity of Jesus was made manifest to the disciples. In the middle of their distress, they looked up and saw the glory of God passing by, the glory of the Lord shining out of the Son of God. Let's look at verses 49 through 52. This shifts us from the vantage point of Jesus to the vantage point of the 12 on the ship, the 12 disciples on the ship battling the wind and the waves. Verse 49, when, when it says to see a ghost there or a phantom in the first century meant that there was a dread of disaster coming. If you thought you saw a ghost, that means there was something bad about to happen. They literally shriek in terror and are thrown in a panic when they see Jesus walking on the water. Look at verse 50. Mark makes it very apparent that all 12 were eyewitnesses and they were all terrified. But when the word of our Lord comes in and calms the storms in their hearts and minds, this is what Jesus says. He says, take heart. It is I or I am. Do not be afraid. I want to pause here for just a moment. And I want to ask this. Are you facing you personally? Are you facing some kind of storm, some kind of uncertainty that has sent you into a tailspin? Do you find yourself being anxious often and questioning the future? And even more, questioning God's goodness. Here's what I want to say to you, Christian. Be of good cheer. Have courage. Let not your heart be troubled. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. If you don't have this underlined, highlighted, do that now. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's, here's, here's my encouragement to you, Christian, is to cast yourself wholly on Christ. Cast yourself wholly on Christ, and he will give you peace. Author and Hebrew scholar Chad Bird says this, in times of trouble, Jesus doesn't stand on the shore and shout, hey, row a little harder, think positive, you got this. He is not a life coach. He is not a personal trainer or a cheerleader on the sidelines of life. He is the Lord of the storms. He rules the wind and waves. He comes to us in our fear and hopelessness to say, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Let's look at verse 51. I love it when the Bible does this in verse 51. Three things happen here. Jesus gets into the boat with them. The wind ceases and they were utterly astounded. This is an automatic answer to prayer. But Mark doesn't record the 12 apostles saying anything. He only records their astonishment. They were in utter disbelief at what Jesus had done. But pay attention to what happens in verse 51. Jesus gets into the boat with them. He doesn't stand back. He doesn't stand away and say, seriously, you're not having faith again? How many times have we had this conversation, disciples? He doesn't stand back on the water and, and shame them. He gets into the boat with them. The storm and the wind stops, and they are utterly astounded. Let's look at verse 52. In true Markan fashion, he flashes back to the story of the loaves and the fishes. The apostles, they had seen a miracle, but did not understand not only how it was done, but they were dull in their understanding that Jesus is God. For Mark to say their hearts were hardened, this could be the end of the story. Their hearts were hardened, end of story. But he uses language here. They did not understand about the loaves because if they had understood of the loaves, it would be the key to understanding how he walked on water. Each miracle was pointing to something greater or, listen church, look at me for just a moment. It was, each miracle was pointing to something greater, but more importantly, was pointing to someone greater. And that is Jesus himself. Thank God that his patience is unlike anyone else and their story does not end in unbelief. Then we look at the last four verses, verses 53 through 56 of Mark chapter four, uh, six, excuse me. Though they were headed to Bethsaida, they end up in Gennesaret. This was no mere accident. They tie off their ship, that's what moored means. They tie off their ship, and verse 54 tells us that immediately the people on shore recognized him. They recognized Jesus. Again, verse 55, the narrative tells us that they did not walk, they did not slowly walk or saunter, but they ran over from all over the place, all the other regions, and began to bring the sick people on whatever they could get him to, they could get him to Jesus, these people to Jesus on that were sick. Then verse 56 is like a bookend to all that has been taking place in the last few chapters. We have seen Jesus and his apostles deliver demoniacs, heal the sick, teach with authority, and add on top of those things the, the miracles Jesus had performed, proving that he is the Son of God. But the need continues to grow as word of, Je of Jesus and his 12 spreads throughout the regions. Those in need of healing obviously hear word of the woman who was healed by just touching the hem of Jesus' garment. They long to do the same. 
And the last sentence of chapter 6 gives us, cer- gives us certainty of his healing power. It says, and as many as touched it, as many as touched the fringe of his garment were made well. But even with all this evidence right in front of them, many, listen church, many still did not believe. There is a serious tension in the last verse. Jesus was gracious enough to heal all those who came to him and even those who reached out and touched his garments. But many of them remained hard-hearted. Simply, listen, simply, they came, excuse me, they came to Jesus for his stuff, not for him. This is, listen, this is a low Christology. The very Son of God healed them of their diseases, but that is where many of their stories ended. For far too long, listen church, I want you to hear this part. For far too long, this has been what Christianity has looked like, especially here in the West. Come to Jesus because he will get you out of hell, or he will make you feel better about yourself, or he's nicer than his angry father, or he will take the wheel when you can't drive anymore. That's this Jesus that we believe. Listen, this is a weak and pathetic Jesus. This is a weak and pathetic Jesus. We must forsake this Jesus who is a mere bending machine, repent of our idolatry, and look to the Christ of the scriptures. The biblical Jesus is the one we need. This this society is broken. Why? Because sin exists in the world. We see the headlines, we scroll social media, we see all these things taking place because sin exists in our souls and we need a miracle worker. And that miracle worker is Jesus, not so much in feeding us, not so much in in giving sight to the blind, not so much in raising the lame, but raising the one who is dead in their sins. That is the greatest miracle to ever happen is that Jesus, that God would look down on rebellious sinners, those who are dead in their sins, and he would raise them to life. That is something worth celebrating Sunday after Sunday, is to come together and to sing about that. That's why the gospel is such good news. We will never tire of hearing, of, hearing it here at Redeemer. This is the greatest miracle to ever happen. And these miracles that are taking place, Jesus walking on the water, this is what it's pointing us to, is the one who came to me, not the one who waited for me to come to him, the one who came to me and got into my boat with me and raised me from death to life. Let us, church, let us forsake the weak, pathetic Jesus of our age. And let us look to the scriptures and see who is Jesus. This is the only answer we have. Church, this is the only answer we have. And you know what? 
the more we stand on this, the more the world will hate our message. Jesus promises that. Jesus does not promise his church an easy life. He does not promise you a Friday every day. He does not promise you your best life now. If you are living your best life now, then the life to come is gonna be even worse. As Christians, we await the life that is coming when we live in the presence of our King. Let us forsake the weak and pathetic Jesus of our age. And let us look to the one who came and lived perfectly in our place. 2,000 years ago, lived a very real life and was crucified on a Roman cross and died a very real physical death and was buried in a borrowed tomb and after three days defeated death to raise victoriously to life and spent time here on earth teaching and then ascends to the right hand of the Father where he awaits the day that he will come and judge and rule the nations and the evildoer will pay. Listen, the evildoer will pay under the wrath of God forever. So today is the day of salvation. Repent and look to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. Today is the day. Do not harden your heart, but come to the Lord Jesus. Let us bow before him in reverence because he is the king and he deserves our humble submission. I want to end with this, Revelation chapter 19. Band, you can go ahead and make your way up. Revelation chapter 19. Listen, listen to this Jesus. How often people say, well, Jesus, Jesus was the nice guy. He was nicer than his father. When all they have to do, like Vodi Bauckham says, all they have to do is keep turning to Revelation and they'll see who Jesus truly is. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is not a weak and pathetic Jesus. That is the Jesus that Monday morning makes us long for. I want to make two invitations this morning. The first invitation is if you are here this morning and you couldn't honestly answer if you're a Christian or not, our plea to you 
is if you are being crushed under the weight of your sin, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn your back on sin and look to the Savior who forgives. I'll be in the back of the room. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to counsel with you. I'd love to do whatever you need this morning. Come to Christ. Forsake the weak and pathetic Jesus of our age and look to the one who is the true miracle worker. And secondly, if you are in Christ, if you say, yes, Ricky, excuse me, I am a Christian. I believe in Christ. I confess him with my mouth. My, my invitation to you this morning is, is the same. Are there ideas that you have about Jesus in your head and in your heart that you need to repent of? And we need to look to the scriptures. We need to forsake that Christ and look to the one who is described for us here. Repent if that's you. This is often me. Often me throughout the week, I have to spend time repenting to the Lord that that he's just become a vending machine to me, that I just come to him when I need stuff instead of coming to him for every situation in life. Let's pray.